my privilege to do a couple of introductions here this morning as we transition and we hear from God's Word. And as a church family, it's great to be part of a wider family of churches. And so we're part of a church family called Christ Central and part of New Frontiers family. And so it's been great over the last many, many years to have different people come from our family of churches to be with us. And some have actually moved to be here with us over the years to help strengthen our, our churches and our family of churches here in Atlantic Canada and across Canada. And it's great to be part of a church that gives and receives. And so uh, locally, um, we've got a family uh, moving uh, this week or so. Ginny and Christina are going to be moving to Ontario. Kevin's going to stay here. So we're going to pray for them at the end in their transition. And so again, God gives. God, uh, I won't say takes away, but God moves people around to different places for his purposes and plans. And for the past month, we've been able to receive from our friends uh, in England and from a church in Harrogate, John and Kate Payne, and their three kids have been with us, Josie, Eva, and Hudson, and they arrived here on June the 4th and are here to this coming Saturday the 30th, and then they're transitioning to spend some time in Vancouver, and so I met John and Kate, we were saying, eight years ago in England, and have just started to... During that time, seeing them at different things and develop, develop some friendship and relationship. And they're really testing uh, a call about whether or not God's calling them to Canada. And so part of them being here has been to get to know people and to be actually on the ground and to pray and to be uh, together with us. And they originally were a church in Leeds that I was at uh, many years ago. And then they've church planted out uh, seven years ago into Harrogate and have a great church there. And so it's our pleasure to have John and Kate with us. And we've asked John to speak this morning. And I believe God's really put a word on his heart. That's a word in season for us and for everyone here this morning. So John, why don't you come and I'm going to pray for you. And then we'll hand things over to you, okay? So Father in heaven, we just want to thank you again that you're here by your Holy Spirit and that we gather to Jesus and we thank you that when we come to you, you place us into a family and we just thank you for the family of God and that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. And God, we just thank you for sending John and Kate here uh, for this season. And God, we just pray now, would you fill John with your Holy Spirit? Would you come and speak through him? And Father, I pray for every person here that you would give us ears to hear, hearts that are open to receive your word and what you want to say to us and that we would be changed to be more like Jesus. We pray this in his mighty name, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Welcome, John. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction, Joe. Uh, it's great to be able to share with you guys this morning, and it's been a wonderful time for you for the last three weeks, uh, getting to know different ones of you in this room. Uh, as Joe was saying, we've had, um, we've taken this time out, we've taken three months to really kind of seek God for our future, and I have to say that by being with you, we've been massively strengthened and encouraged in this time, so do hear my thank you, our gratitude to you guys as a church, we've loved being with you. This is sadly our last Sunday with you. Um, but we anticipate being back, as Joe has just said. Uh, I think we're going to be back here uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully. And uh, even if we don't come back sooner rather than later, I just want to say that there's a church in Harrogate uh, that is praying for you guys, supporting you uh, in your vision for this place. I've just been so overwhelmed again by your vision, not only for Fredericton, but for Atlantic Canada. I think we've just been bowled over by your, your big eyes, the perspective that God has given you for this area. Your boldness in planting churches is just wonderful to see. And so this church here, this is our church. This is Hope Church in Harrogate. We are praying for you guys. Um, we planted this church about seven years ago, and it's been a wonderful journey just seeing God provide in miraculous ways, uh, seeing this wonderful family grow. Don't you think they're a beautiful bunch, these guys on the screen? <laughs> you just see them. 
And um, I have to say, our journey planting this church has been a bit of a, a funny old one. Uh, we've learned a lot about church planting, about God's church. Uh, we've also learned a lot about ourselves. I've learned a lot about myself in the process of planting this church, which is often the way that God works, isn't he? He, we, he, he speaks to us. He changes us. As we go, as we change the world for him, he changes the world in us. That's how God tends to work. And uh, God's been dealing with some stuff in my life that I want to share about today, uh, particularly around this whole area of guilt and shame. And so I'm going to be honest this morning. About five years ago, about two years into the life of this church plant, I hit the end of the road, it felt like. I kind of came this close to quitting, to laying it all down. The church was going well. The church was flying. But somewhere inside, it wasn't quite working for me. And the reason why was that I kind of just felt desperately inadequate. I didn't feel like I was good enough to live up to the call of God on my life. I may have looked like a confident leader on the outside, but somewhere on the inside, I felt like a bit of a fraud. And I don't know if any of us in this room feel the same way. It's quite a common issue in the church, shame, that we can sometimes carry. In fact, psychologists, any psychologists in this room here this morning? Uh, some psychologists here, some here, will call this by the name imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is the word that they use to describe people that live with a constant fear of being exposed. So it describes the MD of a multi-billion pound business that has no idea how he got to be where he was or do what he's doing. He's got no idea what he's doing, but he secretly hides it away, hoping that he never gets found out. It describes the parent whose kids adore them, but secretly they worry about the day that their kids discover that they're not perfect as parents, which I'm kind of guessing would describe some of us in this room as well. It describes me. In fact, I'll let you in on a little secret. Um, I've often had a recurring dream in my life that goes a little bit something like this, that I'm at this party, grand dude, in a bit like a room like this with chandeliers, Everyone's wearing their finest ball gowns. Everyone's wearing their finest tuxedos. Um, but in my dream, I have this horrible moment where I suddenly realize that everyone is looking at me, everyone's pointing at me, and everyone's laughing. And so in my dream, I look down, and I suddenly realize I've forgotten to put my clothes on. <laughs> and I'm stood there completely starkers, and I run to the back of the room, and I just run out of the room. And apparently, according to psychologists, that is the most common form of nightmare that people have in their lives. And it all comes back to this feeling that we tend to carry in life that we feel inadequate, we feel like imposters, or what the Bible calls shame. We carry shame in our lives. And the passage I want to read out to us today is all about shame, guilt and shame, where it comes from, and how Jesus deals with it in our lives. So if you've got your Bibles here, please turn to Zechariah. Zechariah, chapter 3. If you're wondering where the book of Zechariah is, it's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Funny enough, it was written down by a guy called Zechariah. God gave Zechariah a series of different visions about the new city that he wanted to build for his people on this earth. And it's written around the same time as Nehemiah. So Joe was looking at Nehemiah over our weekend away. So this kind of dovetails perfectly. At this time, the people are coming out of 70 years of exile and what we see here is vision after vision of this wonderful new city 
that God is calling his people to build. And it all points towards the church. In fact, if you want to see the glory of the church, if you skip back to Zechariah chapter 2, if you look at verse 4, God says this about us. He says this about Jerusalem or the church of Jesus Christ, that we will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in this city. And God declares that I myself will be a wall of fire around it, and I will be its glory within. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That's our truth today. God is the wall of fire around his church. He has us surrounded with his goodness, with his greatness, protecting us. And also, God is the glory within his church. He has filled the church with his presence, with his glory. We get to walk in his presence every day of our lives. That's the reality that this is talking about. It's wonderful, isn't it? And yet there's a problem. Because flick over to chapter 3, what we start to see is a problem emerge, and it's our guilt, it's our shame. So in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that then Zechariah had a vision of Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. That's a problem that needs a big answer. So verse 2 goes on. So the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place amongst those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Just a wonderful passage for us to look at this morning. And it starts really with a name, the name Joshua. Biblically, names mean a lot, don't they? And there's no name more profound in the Bible than the name Joshua, pronounced Yeshua, which literally means God is salvation. And it just so happens that in Zechariah's day, the high priest of God's people was called Joshua. He is the Joshua that we see in this passage. It's a wonderful picture for us. Here are the Jews coming out of 70 years of exile and thereby being led by a high priest whose name literally meant God is salvation. You really couldn't make it up. And so the expectation of God on, on this guy would have been sky high. He was to be their hero. For this high priest, above all other high priests, 
really to do what high priests do, which is this, that he would intercede again for God's people, which is a little bit of an old-fashioned word, isn't it, the word intercede. We don't really use that in our world today. What does the word intercede mean? Well, really, it means to appear as someone's representative, which really helps us understand a bit more about the role of a priest, because we might not have any idea what the role of a priest did in the Old Testament, but we do understand what it means to have a representative, because we've all seen, I'm sure, plenty of courtroom dramas. And in courtroom dramas, what happens is that the accused generally doesn't speak for themselves. They don't represent themselves, which is good news, isn't it? Because I know that if that was me, I'd get myself into all kinds of trouble if I was meant to be representing myself. Now, in our law, in English law and in Canadian law, you get to have a representative, a lawyer, who speaks up on your behalf. And that's essentially what the Old Testament priests did. That's who they were. Their job was to represent men and women before God. In fact, the picture of a courtroom is probably the closest thing we have to understanding the significance of the Jewish temple and the role of a Jewish priest. Because they were to stand up for Israel before God. Their role was to make sacrifices on behalf of the people for their sins, sacrificing bulls and goats. And then the high priest was to go into the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. And if they came out alive, the people would cheer and they would celebrate because they knew that their sins had been forgiven. That they were again united with God. That God was with them, with his people. Just such a wonderful picture, an extraordinary act that speaks of God's unity with his people. God has made a way for his people through a representative to be at one with his people. And that was the expectation of Israel upon this guy, Joshua, this high priest, that he would once again intercede for the sins of his people and would restore God's glory to his people. That picture that we saw of the church of Jesus Christ, of the city of God, with God's presence in the middle, surely this Joshua was going to be the one that made it happen. Now, in today's vision, we have this big problem. It's an eternal problem because Joshua, this high priest, the one whose name literally meant salvation, he is powerless to save. In fact, what we see here, we may not see it immediately, but if we were to understand the culture in which this was written, we would understand that Joshua, this high priest, is in the dock himself. He is being accused before God. He stands accused. That's actually what this vision describes. It's a Hebrew courtroom. And Joshua is standing there facing the angel of the Lord who is acting as the judge. And in verse 8, what we see is Joshua's associates, all the other priests, all the priests that went before, all the priests that came after him, they were standing there as well being accused along with Joshua. And here's another thing we know about the Hebrew courtroom, that in those days, the prosecution would always stand to the right of the accused. The defendant would stand there and the prosecution would point the finger from their right-hand side, presenting a case against them. And in today's passage, we get to see the name of the prosecution, don't we? Who is the prosecution? It's Satan. It's Satan, verse 2. And that's literally 
what Satan means. It means prosecutor. Again, remember the importance of names. If you want to see what Satan is, and if you want to see what Satan does, consider his name, because he is the great accuser, the great prosecutor, who points the finger at people day and night. Now, I'm a bit of a film buff, and I wonder if any of us in this room have seen the film Devil's Advocate before. Maybe, maybe not. It's a quite old film. And uh, in that film, uh, it's kind of got Al Pacino acting in the role of Satan. And actually, I think it's probably one of the best representations of the devil that we have in films in Hollywood. Because the devil is not portrayed as this kind of comical red figure running around with a pitchfork. He's presented as a devious lawyer. And that is exactly who Satan is. He is devious. He's a devious lawyer. And this is what he does, because in his hatred for God and in his hatred for you, he does this. He entraps you into sin. And then he grabs you by the arm and he hauls you before God to prosecute you. And he loves nothing more than to put God in the position where he has to pass judgment on those that he loves. I mean, can you imagine being put, being put in such a position as that? Having to pass judgment on your friends and family. And that's Satan's plan, to break God's heart, to get at God by having to get him to pass judgment on you, the apple of his eye. And in today's case, Satan, this prosecutor, this accuser, has Joshua, the people's representative, right where he wants him. He is a watertight case against this guy, and surely God has to send him down. You see, Joshua, as the high priest of Israel, is meant to be clothed in white. Pure white tunic. Around his neck, on his breastplate, he's meant to be wearing 12 radiant, glorious jewels, each representing a different tribe of Israel. And then on his hat, he's meant to have a pure white hat, and on the top of his hat are meant to be the words, holy to God. That is how the high priest were to go into the very presence of God. But in this vision, the high priest is covered in filth. Gone is his hat, gone is his breastplate, gone is his pure white tunic, and instead he's covered with the sins of God's people. In Zechariah's vision, this man becomes everything that is detestable to God which is the case for our sin, isn't it? We often think, I often think sometimes, that we can tuck our sin away. It's just a small thing we can hide, hide from others, hide from God. But the Bible says that our sin stains absolutely everything in our lives. Even our best works, even our good deeds, the Bible says sin leaves a lasting stain. That's what this vision is of. Joshua, humanity's representative, is covered in guilt. And so if you want to know where shame comes from, really, this is it. Shame comes from your adversary. Shame comes from your prosecutor, your accuser, who has put you on trial. Behind the scenes of your life, you may not see it, but you have Satan standing before you and God, and he is constantly pointing the finger, reminding you of how inadequate you are, Reminding the court of how, of how inadequate you are. Reminding God of how inadequate you are. That you are nothing more than an imposter. 
You see, do you notice here the difference between how we talk about shame and how the Bible talks about shame? Because the world will tell you that you can combat shame in your life through various techniques. That if you have a problem with shame, if you feel inadequate, all you need to do is look in the mirror and tell yourself how wonderful you really are. Or maybe it's taking the words of the song that you've got to search somewhere inside yourself for that beautiful thing inside you. You've got to search for that beauty within. Or maybe it's surrounding yourself with new friends that will tell you nice things about yourself. Surely if you do that enough, you can get rid of the shame in your life. That it's possible to live a shame-free life. But actually what this is saying is the opposite. Because shame doesn't come from you. It's not your mind playing tricks on you. It's the voice of your enemy who speaks over you. Imposter. Inadequate. Fake. Phony. Not up to scratch. And what's worse, what the, what the Bible says, is what the prosecution says is true. Because that's exactly who we are. The Bible says that every single person has fallen short of the glory of God. So we need so much more than nice friends, so much more than nice songs to cleanse our conscience. No, the only way to remove shame in our lives, or let me put it this way, the only way to shut Satan up, to silence the accuser, is to have our guilt removed. The only way. But that is the bit we often skip over, isn't it? We don't like to think about our guilt, so we try and address shame in all manner of different ways, such as this. We try to often outperform shame. So this is where we take this deep feeling of inadequacy and we channel it and we harness it. This voice that says you're not up to scratch, we take that and we let it drive ourselves to prove ourselves worthy. Sex, money, power, success. These are often the tools that we use to do that. In my life, my big thing is looking for the affirmation of others. I can deal with some of the shame in my life by basking in the love of people, in their encouragement. That's kind of the way, that's my drug of choice. That's how I self-medicate shame in my life, by basking in people's love. But I also know from some of my friends that money and power are equally as effective as in pacifying this feeling of shame in our lives. Another way we try to deal with shame in our lives is through denial. In other words, we fill our lives with distractions so we don't have to think about this feeling that we carry in our hearts. It's called escapism. So have any of us in this room heard of a girl called Brené Brown before? Brené Brown is a psychologist, American psychologist, who's done a lot of work on shame, been on TV a lot, She's got a lot of publicity for the things that she's been saying. And she's made this link in the past. She says this, We are the most in-depth, obese, addicted, and medicated generation in history because the only way we know how to deal with shame is to numb ourselves to it. She makes this connection that the more inadequate we feel, the more we immerse ourselves into drink and drugs and eating and all the pleasures of life that we forget this feeling within. The third way we often deal with shame 
is with what I call outright defiance, which is really the song I think of at the moment. It's the song that my kids often sing to me over breakfast this morning. They were singing it to me. It's the song, This Is Me, yeah? From the film, The Greatest Showman. I only saw it the other week. It's a great film. And the song is really a rebel song against shame. It says this. Here's, here's the lyrics. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. I won't let the shame sink in, for we are glorious. And I know that I deserve love. There's nothing I'm not worthy of. This is me. But the truth of this passage is that it's not enough to be me. We can't face down shame on our own. We are guilty as charged. We are inadequate before God. Even the high priest here, the one person we could have banked on to intercede for us, the high priest of Israel, he's not good enough for us either. You see, people often pay, don't they, through the nose for a good lawyer, a good representative. Why? Well, because if they're eloquent, you kind of become eloquent as well. If they put up a good argument, you kind of put up a good argument. If they're brilliant, you become brilliant because they're your voice. All of who they are kind of gets imputed to you. If they win in the court, you win. If they lose, you lose. And in this case, Israel's representative has just lost. Here he is clothed in rags, guilty as charged, which is true for us all. There is no priest, no church, no penance, no religious expert that can dig us out of this hole. Please don't put your faith in any person, any church, any organization to get you out of this hole. God, this is a bit of doom and gloom this morning, isn't it? This is quite heavy right now, and purposely so, because the gospel, which is what I'm about to share, radiates against this dark, gloomy picture that I've just painted. Because the question is, how on earth, then, do we get out of this situation? What on earth do we do? And that's the point of this passage. We, Trinity Church, we do nothing. You see, not once in this passage does Joshua, the accused, open his mouth to defend himself. Do you notice that? He doesn't say a word because someone else comes to his defense. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we see here. That's what this is about. You see, in Hebrews 7, it says this about Jesus, that he is a permanent priest in the presence of God who is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Do you see that's what this passage is about? That's what's going on here. Zechariah, in his vision, is seeing the priest above all priests, the one that we're worshipping this morning, the one that we're glorifying, the intercessor above all intercessors who makes it possible for us to live our lives in God's presence. Israel's priests were never enough to bring us into the glory of God. But Jesus, he is more than enough to bring us into the very presence, the glory of God. You see, what does Jesus' name mean? What does the name Jesus mean? God is salvation, yeah. Jesus is the Latin version of the name Joshua, which means God is salvation. 
And so in other words, what we have here in this passage are two Joshuas. One is man's representative, Joshua, covered in sin. The other is Jesus, who can save completely those who come to him. It's a wonderful picture here. Two people that we can gravitate towards, and only Jesus can save. And notice how he defends us. I love this bit. See, the first thing that he does, verse 2, is he rebukes Satan. Again, that's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? The word rebuke. But really what that means is that Jesus shuts Satan up, (laughs) silences him. To rebuke someone is to speak in such a way that you take the wind out of their voice. And I hope, again, you notice that in this passage. Satan doesn't say a single word either. He falls dumbstruck before Jesus. There is no comeback. You know, there's a wonderful scene in the Chronicles of Narnia where the kids are there being mocked by the white witch. She is cursing them and laying into them, being kind of nasty. And then Aslan rocks up onto the scene and he simply roars and the white witch falls to her knees, dumbstruck, silent, nothing left to say. And that's what it means when Jesus rebukes. He has roared over Satan. He has silenced your prosecution with these words that you are, verse 2, a stick snatched from the fire. In other words, you are his. You are his. Jesus is roaring here that you are mine. No one can take you out of my hand. It really is reminiscent of John chapter 10 where Jesus says this of us. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can possibly do it. And that's the kind of defense we have in Jesus. He is like a lion protecting his cubs. And with one roar, the enemy falls silent. And I really want us to hear that this morning because really in my role, I come across way too many Christians who give the enemy, who give the accuser, our prosecution, way too much airtime. We spend our time listening to him. He's accusing us. We listen to it, we play around with his words in our heads, we let it trouble us. I know I do it. You know, I can sometimes go to bed happy as Larry, having had a great day, go to sleep, but then I wake up in the middle of the night to this nagging thought in my head. That, you know, yesterday when I had a drink with Brent, I did something that really upset this guy. And it starts to trouble me, that kind of thought. And I play on it, and I worry about it some more. And the next thing that goes through my head is, you know what, he probably doesn't like me now. And you know what, he may kind of tell the church how mean I really am. And then I play on this thought some more, and I start to listen to these accusations some more, and I think, you know what, this church, they're probably not going to like us anymore. We probably have to leave, get out of this place. And that's the reality. It comes sometimes what can go through our heads, isn't it? I can go to bed happy as Larry, having had a great day, but wake up the next day with the weight of the world on my shoulders because I've been listening to the accuser. And that's our problem. As Christians, we sometimes spend way too much time listening to the accuser instead of listening to our defense. And our defense, Jesus, is an advocate who roars on our behalf. And in the only case that only ever matters in your life, He has silenced the prosecution. And he's done it with one amazing move that Gary referenced 
this morning. For the Lord Jesus says to Joshua, verse 4, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. You see, the fact is we all are guilty as charged. Not once in this passage are we declared not guilty. We are guilty. There's no way around that. And please know that Jesus doesn't go begging to God on your behalf. He's not that kind of advocate. He's not that kind of lawyer. He doesn't plead to the judge. doesn't go up to the bench and say, please, can you let John off? You know, just give him one more chance. He's really a good person. Let him off. You know, for years, that's what I thought Jesus did. That's what I thought it meant to have Jesus as my intercessor, that he was pleading before God on my behalf, getting down on one knee, begging that I may be let off. But that's not what Jesus does. Nowhere in this passage does Jesus beg God for mercy. Instead, he makes a proper case on my behalf. He makes a watertight case. Because this is what he does. He swaps shirts. He takes our filthy garments, our filthy rags, and he puts them upon himself. And he takes his beautiful, radiant, glorious robes, and he places them upon us. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says this. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to that last bit again. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what happened on the cross. Jesus, covered in our filthy rags, he got the punishment that we deserve. And we, covered in his righteous garments, spotless garments, we are declared to be a son, a daughter of God. Righteous, perfect, pure, clothed in his perfection. That's how Jesus intercedes for us. That's what it means to have Jesus as your intercessor. He doesn't ask God for mercy. He actually asks God for justice. That you be declared legally right, legally perfect, legally spotless as he is spotless. And it's a watertight case in your life. If you could put your hope in Jesus, this is your reality right now. And all of history... It points to this incredible verdict. It's what verse 8 says, that the priests of the Old Testament were merely symbolic of the things to come. In other words, they were a mere shadow. They were a foretelling. They were a signpost, an echo, pointing towards the priest above all priests who was to come into the world. One who would make it possible for us to enter into the presence of God, the Holy of Holies, not through the blood of animals, but through God's blood his own blood, not through our good works, but we come robed in his righteous garments, his clothes. And that is how you beat shame in your life. That's how you silence your accuser, through nothing but Jesus. And it's all you need to do if you're here and you're wondering, how do I therefore get clean before God? This is it. Invite him into your life. Make him your representative. And as your advocate, he does the rest. He meets you in your shame, in your inadequacy, and he makes you more than adequate. And later on in a bit, I'm going to provide an opportunity for us to respond. If you'd like to respond to that call here, 
this morning. I believe there are some people here that need to respond to that. Just listen to the writer of Hebrews. In Hebrews 9, it says this, If the blood of goats and bulls offered by the high priest of Israel was enough to deal with Israel's shame, how much more will the blood of Jesus, will the blood of God, cleanse our consciences, cleanse us within? So I wonder, who here needs their consciences cleansed this morning? Who here needs their consciences cleansed? And you see, this isn't just for those of us that need to put our trust in Jesus. This is also for those of us who still struggle with shame in this room. We've just forgotten how glorious we are in Christ. I believe that your conscience needs to be cleansed this morning again. You need to be reminded of your eternal reality. This is how God sees you. You may not feel like it, and that's simply because your brain has some catching up to do, but your eternal reality has changed. And so I'm just going to land this just by quickly helping you. You see, you can actually know if this is you by the way that you approach God. As a pastor of a church, one of the big giveaways to know about whether someone still lives in shame or not is really about how they approach God. How do they feel in his presence? Because the biggest symptom of shame is that we become reluctant to journey into God's presence. The Bible is very clear on this. We can boldly approach the throne of God's grace. Boldly. We can run into it. <laughs> With all of who we are, I can be John before God. All of who I am. I'm free to be me before him. But we often don't do that. The church is not known for being bold. It's not known for being bold in our worship. It's not known for being bold in our expectation of God. Not being known for being bold in the way that we receive from God. If anything, we can still be incredibly awkward around him. Church can sometimes be one of those awkward places, can't it? Why is that? And here's the thing. It's not because we're not good enough. We've just seen that. God has qualified us through Christ. The doorway to God's presence is wide open. It has nothing to do with what kind of week we've had, what we've done this week. It's not about our merit, it's about Jesus' merit. And we can run into God's presence every day. As we've also seen, it's not because of Satan. Satan can't stop you going into God's presence. He's been silent. Nothing against you that he says sticks before God. He can't stop you coming into God's presence. And actually, I'm going to go a little bit off the cuff here as well. The church can't stop you coming into God's presence as well. You see, too many people treat the church today as some kind of advocate between us and God. We still believe in the priesthood that would allow us to enter God's presence. We put our faith in people to the extent that if the pastor does this, the right things, if a church kind of sets the right mood, the right ambience, or if we play the right songs, the right music, then we can properly meet with God. But if we live in a church, if we go to a church that isn't quite like that, then we can't quite get to the same place as other churches can. Do you know what I'm saying? And it's absolute rubbish. It's absolute rubbish because we have one advocate. We have one representative, and his blood was enough to guarantee you access into the holy of holies be that alone in your bedroom or in a church that sings all the songs that you don't like it doesn't matter he is here 
and he's with us. We don't need techniques for knowing God with us. We don't need techniques for knowing about the presence of God. We just need Jesus. And Jesus has already done it for us. Amen? Jesus has made a way for us to come into the Holy of Holies to know God's glory. And so often we, I think we just listen to the enemy's lies. He's been beaten. He's been put down by Christ. But he still whispers from the sidelines and sometimes we just listen too much. He's been beaten. He can't have an effect on us, but he still listens. And you know what? Sometimes I can find myself in that place as well, living by my flesh, not just by the enemy, but I've lived in a world of shame for so long that I kind of live in this embarrassed, apologetic way, kind of feeling sorry for myself. But again, that's not what, how Christ calls us to live as well. And so the key for us to live in this place is to be daily taking off these clothes of shame and putting on the clothes of God's righteousness, reminding ourselves of who we are in Christ. You know, in my job, I very rarely get to wear a suit. I just dress like this. And uh, on the odd occasion, I get to wear a suit, which is great. And something happens when I put on a suit. Um, I tend to become more confident. I kind of puff my chest out a bit. I walk with a bit of a swagger. Kate will tell you that I tend to speak a bit more smooth, you know, and kind of has a diff it makes a difference to me how I dress. And if that's the same for a suit that we can just put on, how much more true is it for the righteousness of God when we live in that place, when we clothe ourselves in Christ on a regular basis? And that is the key to walking, dancing, boldly approaching the throne of grace, knowing God amongst us. And so why don't we do it now? Should we stand? And um, whilst we've been with you, I've just had this constant prophetic word as Kate and I have been talking about just this new thing that God wants to do amongst you, just taking you deeper into his presence. I think Kate shared a word about it last week, that there's a deeper place for you to get to, knowing the fullness of God's presence amongst you as a church. And the only thing that stops you getting to that place is shame. It really is. It's yourself. It's the way you think about yourself. And I really do believe that God wants to cause you to push through, to come to know him in a deeper way. And right now he's dealing with shame in our lives. He's putting his finger on things, in places where we've discounted ourselves, feelings where we feel inadequate and we can't quite come into God's presence. Even this morning, I believe that some of us have struggled this morning because we've been listening too much to our accuser and not to our defense. And I just want to allow space for the Holy Spirit to speak, that we would listen to our defense this morning, that we would listen to Jesus. God just wants to deal with shame and guilt in this room. And in a minute, I'm going to make some declarations that we're going to speak together. I think that would be a powerful thing that we do. But before we do that, I don't want to take it for granted that anyone in this room knows Jesus as their representative. And so I just want to lead you in a prayer of salvation. This is your chance to give your life to Jesus. And no one's watching you. I'm not going to call a response for you to put your hand up in the air. But I'd love you just to pray this prayer with me or with us as we pray this through. I'm just going to put it on the screen behind me. I need to get closer to it so I can see it. So if you'd like to put your trust in Jesus this morning, please close your eyes. Repeat this with me. 
that Jesus, I invite you into my life as my advocate. I admit that I am guilty. I am a sinner. But thank you for taking my sin. Thank you for taking my punishment upon yourself. I'm amazed that you would clothe me with your righteousness so that I could know your Father as my Father. And I receive it now as a free gift. And I ask that your promised Holy Spirit would now flood into my life just as you promised. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now I'd love us to declare some truths to each other. I think declaring is so powerful that we can declare out loud to one another, to ourselves, exactly who we are in Christ. In fact, if we could have the band back, that would be great. There's a song that fits perfectly with this. I'm guessing some of us would have guessed what it is already. And uh, if you've just put your faith in Jesus, I want to say loud and clear that you can say these words along with us too. This is your truth right now. Your eternal reality has just changed once and for all. So we're going to say these words together. I am not, I am not, who I say I am, what the world says I am, who my accuser says I am. I am who Jesus has declared I am. This is me. I am loved like Jesus is loved. I am perfect as he is perfect. I am beautiful as he is beautiful. I am protected forever by him. I am made for his presence. And I am where the Holy Spirit dwells. Isn't this wonderful? This is our reality. Should we just give Jesus a round of applause? Say thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we, we just say, Lord, we are so in love with you. Lord, we, again, just declare your magnificence, your glory, your beauty. Jesus, we say thank you for, again, we just say remind ourselves that, Lord, you have clothed us with your beauty. You have clothed us with your magnificence, with your glory. We thank you, Jesus, that, Lord God, you, you, you chose us before the creation of the world to be robed as sons and daughters of God. And, Lord God, we repent for hovering around the outskirts of your presence. Jesus, we choose not to dwell in that place anymore, but we recognize that you have made the path clear for us to come into your red-hot glory this morning, for us to know your presence with us every day of our lives. And, Lord, I ask for this church... <laughs> that, Lord God, this would be the place that they hang out. Lord God, I ask for, Lord, bold living, bold worship, Lord God, people that boldly receive from you, we ask in your name. Say, come Holy Spirit, seal what you're doing here this morning, bring salvation, raise up a bold people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
while we were doing the declarations that John led us through, all of a sudden I had this picture of a demolition taking place. And everybody was standing around waiting for the demolition to take place. And as the charge was set, and I believe it has to do with these declarations, it's like when we make these declarations, the building falls. You know, the things that need to be demolished falls. But for some of you today, when John led us through those declarations, even though they're true, even in that, there were some of you that had a hard time saying it or even believing it. And it's as if the demolition happened and half the building fell, and there's still the remnants of that building standing there. And God would say this morning, I'm setting a charge that the whole building would fall. That it's not just half the building that falls, it's the whole building that falls, you see, because a little bit later in verse 9, it says here in Zechariah 3, actually in verse 8, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, capital B, that's Jesus. That's a specific reference to Jesus. And it says in verse 9 that there are several eyes on that one stone. That milestone of Jesus, all eyes look on him. You see, because if your eyes are looking on yourself, half the building falls. If your eyes look to Jesus and those declarations are here, I feel like for some of us, some of you need to state these again and you need to state them over and over and over again because they're true, the whole building's got to fall. All those lies have to fall. And so some of you this morning, when John led us through, I am loved like Jesus is loved, even in saying it, you got a hard time believing it. What's the next one? I am beautiful as he is perfect. Some of you... Even though I said it, I'm not sure that I actually believe that. What's the next one? I am perfect as he is perfect. That's a tough one for some of you. It's been a tough one for me. You see, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that because of Jesus, he has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. He has done it. He has made us perfect. What's the next one? I am protected forever by him. You are protected forever by him. Some of you fear the future. You fear that you're not going to be protected. And the next one, I'm made for his presence. You've heard that this morning. You are made for his presence. Your purpose on earth is to worship God. He's gathering worshipers to himself. And the next, I am where the Holy Spirit dwells. And because of that truth, all of the other ones are true. Let's just take a moment here in God's presence. I believe this morning that there are some of us, if you don't know Jesus this morning and you've asked Jesus to come into your life, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to know who you are. We're not going to in any way embarrass you by bringing you out of your seats, and we don't want to do that, but we'd love to know who you are. Please, please, please see me, see John, see Joe, Brent, Barb, somebody. Just say, Someone of your friends, I just this morning became a Christian. We need to, we want to pray with you and strengthen you in God. But this morning, if you're a Christian here 
And some of these things, you just want to nail them home by taking a step of faith, by actually moving your feet. I'm going to ask you to come as the band continues to play. And we want to help you. We want to pray with you. And we want to see, we want to agree with these statements with you in your life. We want to agree with those things. So we're going to ask you to start to come. If that's you, just make your way out of your seats. Be bold. As John said, be courageous. There are some that are coming now. Like, I, you know what? I have this picture of people running for the mercy seat. We run to God. We can run boldly. We can come into his presence. There is more people here as we continue to worship God. Let's not lose focus or lose sight as we worship if you feel, you know what, I just want to reaffirm these truths in my life, and I want someone to agree with those truths with me, please come, all right, as we worship. We're just going to continue on for another verse or two, and there'll be people that will gather around you. That's right. Just keep coming. There's more of you, I know. God is calling you this morning. He's calling you by name. He's saying, I love you. I care about you. I want you. Thank you, Lord.
We're going to continue to pray for people, but we're going to transition here. And so uh, for our parents, you can make your way to Christ Central Kids to get your kids. For everyone else, you can welcome out in our entryway to be able to continue to talk.